0: The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One.
1: Support for No Excuses with John Taffer comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive buying power process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep the new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to com slash taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain thirty year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on quicken loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, license in all fifty states, NMLS Consumer Access dot org number three zero three zero.
2: This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John
1: Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about. So stop making excuses and let's
2: get started, because this gets real right now.
0: All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Woo!
1: Well, here it is, Christmas week 2018, and welcome to the No Excuses Podcast. This is pretty exciting. This is my first ever best of podcast. Well, I've had some great guests this year and I picked what I think is some of the greatest moments of funny, inspirational, informational, and what I think are really compelling moments that we've had this year. And I think you have a lot of fun listening. But before I get going, I want to just take a minute and thank my sponsors because without them, we wouldn't be here. Thank you to My Pillow, Bet DSI, True Car, and Quicken Loans. And before we get going, I just want to thank everybody for supporting a podcast i also want to remind you to hit subscribe at apple Podcasts. go to podcastone.com or the podcast one app and you'll get your podcast downloaded automatically every monday night tuesday morning you'll be ready to go all right it's time for my first clip this was my very first guest ever on a no excuses podcast he's a good friend of mine most of you know who he is and this is dan katz otherwise known as barstool big cats so Dan Katz and I have been friends for how long, Dan? About
0: six years. Yeah, it's been like five or six years, I'd say. I remember you before you were big cat. When I met you, you were actually sort of little cat, and it was yeah, the- I've yeah, I've gained a little bit of weight in uh, in the past few years. I appreciate you bringing that up.
1: <laughs> so, when you started Barstool Sports, how long ago was that?
0: So, Dave. Portnoy started Barstool Sports. I think it was about 2005. Uh, I always get that kind of fuzzy. I came on in 2012, so I've been with Barstool and Dave for s- over six years now, and uh, it's been a crazy ride. It used, it started just with Dave doing his thing in Boston, and then he's grown it cities, and he started. I started in Chicago. We had a guy in New York. We had a guy in Philly. We had a guy in DC, and then you know, in the last couple of years, we got purchased, and now we're all in New York.
1: And what's amazing is I've got to watch your growth from the beginning. When we first met, we did a burger cook-off with you and Dave at Barney's Beanery in Hollywood. Remember that? Six years ago.
0: Yeah. And the funny thing is when you look at where we're at now and the amount of guests that we have and people, you know, celebrities and and people we have come through on our podcast, on radio, on video, it's become kind of second nature that we can get all these guests. And I remember vividly because you were one of the first guys we did anything with and I walked away from that moment and I said, people were like, what was Taffer like? I was like, what you see is what you get because that guy, he just brings it. And, you, and I think even, you know, just the judging our, uh, the drinks we made and then when we did the blog rescue, I think the best part about the blog rescue was we told you maybe two sentences. Like, you're like, tell me exactly what you want me to do. And we gave you like a little background of, all right, our fans sometimes think that we're uh, lazy and we're not doing a good job. You're like, all right, got it, good, let's go. And that was it. That's all you needed.
1: Oh, it's, it's so easy to beat the hell out of you, buddy, and, and <laughs> Dave as well. And let's just tell everybody a little bit about Barstool Sports. How many hits does Barstool Sports get online each month about?
0: So I don't know about uh, – I don't know the exact number. I know it's obviously well in the millions, and it's been growing over and over. And you know the podcasts have been uh, also in the millions now uh, in terms of our entire podcast network so we're reaching you know our our twitter our instagram has a couple million followers our twitter has a million followers that's just our main account not not counting all the bloggers who you know half a million all these other numbers so it's it's crazy and when we first linked up i probably had 30,000 twitter followers so it was that long ago and it was that uh you wow. know it it was that at the beginning of our kind of ascent into what we are today And how many people we reach today
1: so think about this story dan and how it means to to people today are starting out with youtube or as bloggers we're trying to monetize and create a business online you guys started with this website that started really about sports but became very much about pop culture because i remember beating you guys up about bieber when you were doing Mm -hmm. bieber why do you think barstool sports is so successful
0: I think it really comes down to the fact that people feel like they know us and we're relatable and we don't really take ourselves too seriously you see it a lot now uh whether it be in the news whether it be in how sports are presented the the you know it's if you look at uh say a sports center or something like that where they have this huge entire this enormous set and these huge cameras and hd screens and and you've forgotten that what it's really all about is the connection to the person on TV and the connection you're trying to make with the person who is who is presenting your interest. And so we are, for better or worse, sometimes it's sometimes it's not it's not on purpose. Sometimes it's uh, you know we call it the barstool difference around here where we screw up, where we make mistakes, where we do low rent stuff, uh, and and that's that's it sometimes can get frustrating. But at the end of the day, we the way we produce content is. If we have a funny idea, we bring it out there.
1: You know what I think is incredible about you guys, how you took nothing and turned it into something that's so substantial and worth millions and millions of dollars now. It's really an incredible story. So I want to talk to you about something that I've never talked about publicly before. You've done recon on Bar Rescue for me now twice. Is that right? Yep, twice. And you've been on set. You've seen the show you've seen the interaction with cast members. When I invited you to Bar Rescue to do Recon for the first time, I know you had no idea what to expect.
0: What was that like? It was a thrill, and it was um, – I think it was in Country Club Hills, Chicago, outside of Chicago, and it was uh, – I showed up, and I didn't realize just how, like, cool the whole experience was going to be, and it lived up to it in every every way, and also just seeing – so. First one, I was able to come back, and to be able to see how how downtrodden that bar was, and then what you had made it into in a couple of days was incredible. And I saw it with my own eyes. I ate dinner the second time I came back, and I actually trusted the food. You know, the first <laughs> time was a, was a big time gamble. So seeing that evolution so fast was such a cool experience. And uh, like I said, everyone ever everyone asked me, and it's like, yeah, Taffer. Like oh Taffer's acting. No, Taffer doesn't act. Taffer is Taffer. He is he is like he is like that all the time. He is you know if, if he's talking, if he's yelling, if he's trying to tell you something, you're glued in because he has that type of personality. And it was real, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and we did the second one was uh, with Chris Long in St. Louis. And yep. I'll tell you what, the Jello shot that I had, the pudding shot. That was very real and it was very disgusting. <laughs> the brisket nachos, very real, very disgusting. So, 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 be my buddy and tell everybody
1: right now, straight out, is bar rescue scripted?
0: No, I did not. Nothing that I saw was scripted. I what? saw the real anger. I saw the real people work there. Like those are, the, I knew those were the real people that worked there. I saw the regular customers when I was in there. There was nothing that was scripted that I saw at all. I get a clean bill of health from
1: you, buddy. Bar Rescue is real as an endorsement from Big Cat at Barstool
0: Sports, right? Yes, absolutely. Always, always. You you know I always got your back, even though I think uh, you're crazy.
1: <laughs> I think you're the crazy one. So, Barstool
0: Sports, what's next for you? Um, I think really what's next is just finding new ways to make our fans laugh and find new fans out there because I think there are a ton of people out there that – uh, would enjoy what we do if they knew more about us, and that's a goal every single day.
1: Yeah, that's a good goal, buddy. So what's next for you personally? So you're not married yet. You're still nope. a diehard sports fan. You're hooked to your TV, your radio, watching sports all the time. What are you personally missing? I mean, think about this, what you've achieved. You've know, you you've built this company. You've been a major part of it. you built a great brand for yourself online and off You now have two identities as Dan Katz and as Big Cat. So you've personally set yourself up with with a a direction that you could take that's very different from, I'm guessing, what you've ever planned on doing before. What do you want to do personally that you haven't done before?
0: Can I say money? Can I say actually cash in on some money? Sure. So you want to turn this into some cash? No, that's a good answer. I, no. Uh, yeah. I think eventually I would like to fulfill, you know, some of the dreams in that respect, having financial independence. The way I look at it is I have, you know, a set amount of years, kind of like an athlete where I can be in this content grind in this world that kind of, you know, it's a lot. It takes a lot of pressure, but it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I have only so many more years left, in it, so that's really the focus, and it's kind of put your head down and do everything that's asked me and, and try new things, You know, whether it be TV, whether it be uh, other radio, anything that comes across that I think would be fun that would help us grow, I'm in for. So that's really, if I'm being totally honest, that's really what I'm focused on. So the fact
1: of the matter is you're just in, Dan, aren't you, buddy? Yeah, very. And that's why you're successful. So think about this. You start a blog, you start a website, you turn it into a radio show, you turn it into a very successful podcast and now a national brand. Think of all the young people that would love to follow in your footsteps that are trying to launch businesses like this online. Dan, let's make this a teachable moment. What is the one lesson that you've learned that that you want to share with everybody who's looking at your career path and saying, boy, I'd like to be able to do that?
0: I would say the one thing, and I, I tell this to people when they ask me, it's uh, you got to be reliable and you have to be a dog when it comes to your work ethic. And I know that, that that sounds cliche, but what has happened with sports media in this world and with Twitter and how anyone could start a podcast, a blog, talent will rise. And you, you have, if, if you are committed to it, if you wake up every day and you say, I'm going to try to produce some some form of content for my audience, whether it be five people or, or 5,000 people or 500,000 people, you getting up and saying, I'm going to produce this every single day and people being able to start relying on you knowing that you're going to produce every day, that's what it's all about. And if you're talented and you're unique and you got a point of view that people want to hear, it will rise and someone will notice. Anyone can be out there and be successful as long as they put in a lot of work. It's not easy. you got to put in a ton of hours. You look at Dave. Dave put in hours and hours and years. Anyone else, Kevin, KFC, who's here, you know, K Marco Feidelberg, any of the guys, even PFT, who, who's had a whole, you know, years before he came to Barcelona, any of the guys who kind of you look at and they're like maybe the the OG crew, the guys who've been around for a long time, there were a lot of years that were put into it. There was a lot of writing, a lot of mastering of the craft, to get to a point. So it's not gonna happen overnight, but it can happen for sure if you want it enough.
1: So the fact of the matter is Dan Katz is not a lucky son of a bitch. He's a really hard working guy who made this happen. Fair. Yeah,
0: luck l- listen, luck always you always have to have a little luck, but uh wh- what's the old saying? Isn't there a saying like Hard work beats luck when luck runs out or something like That's that. Right. That's a good I might have made that up. I uh, might have made
1: it up. But, you know, we share something in common. This didn't come easy for me either, buddy. You know, you think of all the hours on the road. fact of the matter is success is hard, and you've proven it. And now you're turning the corner of great wealth and more success than you've ever realized. So why, you being a Chicago boy, why does Chicago sports suck so much these days? Oh,
0: hold on now. The Bears are back. The Cubs are good. Cubs are in first place as we're taping this. At the
1: moment, uh, yes. The Let's talk Hawks, about the White Sox. The, the, la- the Blackhawks.
0: Blackhawks <laughs> needed a summer off. The White Sox I don't care about. And the Bulls will probably never be good again.
1: So, so you're saying you don't care about the one that sucks. And the other one that sucks, you don't care about. It. So you're only talking about the couple that are good. So as an amazing Chicago sports fan, give me your forecasts. What happens with the Bears this year?
0: Bears are going to go, oh, man. I'm going to say it. They're going to go 9-7. and seven. And they're going to maybe sneak in. I don't. I can't. I can't predict how the the NFC playoff you know picture is going to look. But they might be able to sneak in. I would say eight and eight. Eight and eight. I'm going to say eight and eight. I'm going to be realistic. I'm going to give you the realistic answer. I think the Bears go eight and eight. I think this is going to be a big year for them. And then the next year is going to be the launch off year. That's going to be when everyone says, "Watch out for the Bears." So, um, so Blackhawks the- are going to be back, and the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, we get to make a little wager on that one. I lost the hockey bet, so what is our bet on the Cubs? So let's let's talk about it. If the Cubs make it to the World Series, they don't even have to
0: win it. What's our bet, buddy? Oof. I'll have to. Let me think about that. I, you know what we'll do? I'll come back on in a couple months and we'll set the stakes for the bet.
1: I want some serious stakes on this bet because I'm betting yes. big time against the Cubs, and you're going with them. And one of us is going down. You agree?
0: Yes, absolutely. And we'll do this little tease for the next time I'm on.
1: It's a deal, buddy. Listen, Dan, this has been a lot of fun, buddy. I appreciate you coming on as my first podcast. You and I have been through a lot together. So I'll be on your podcast soon. Let's get that wager set because this next wager needs to cost, buddy. One of us needs to hurt if we lose this one. You agree? I'm in. I'm in. Okay. So in a couple of weeks, you're coming back. We're going to set up this wager, and then we're going to hold each other to it.
0: Okay. I'm in. We'll do it. Thanks for having me on, Taff. Love you. Love you too, buddy. Dan Katz. Right. Big Cat, Barstool Sports. Good to have you, buddy. That
1: was a lot of fun talking to Big Cat. You know, that podcast is one of the highest rated podcasts we've ever done. Speaking of highest rated, my next clip comes from Adam Carolla, who's in the Guinness Book of Worlds Records for the most podcast ever downloaded. And Adam and I really had some fun. Take a listen. Were you funny when you were in high school?
2: Yeah, I was. I was uh, I was a jock, which was weird, but I was funny. I, I also uh, got Class Clown of uh, North Hollywood High in 1982, but there was nothing to do with it. It was just, you're funny, great, now go on to a construction site and pick up garbage. That was kind of the way the world treated me
1: so what did you hope to do when you got out of of college did you hope to be in a business like this did you ever think that this would happen to you
2: well i didn't go to college uh i didn't have the money or the or the grades or the essay i never took the sats or algebra class or anything i just kind of i just kind of got through high school i had actually saw my records the other day for some reason i was Uh, Out of my graduating class at North Hollywood High, I was 497 out of 555. So I was was about 500 (laughs) out of 550. Wow, you and I shared this.
1: I actually left high school in the middle of my senior year to pursue music, and my parents let me do it. And then years later, I wanted to go to college, so I had to take a GED uh, to go to college for a couple of years. So, so uh, you were really then you went into construction. When did this happen, and how did this happen for you? What is the first thing that you ever did in show business?
3: Um, uh,
2: well, I went into construction. You know, I I shouldn't say I went into construction. I I got a phone call from a friend of mine when I was about eighteen or nineteen and i was living in my dad's garage in north hollywood and he just said they need some help on this job site and i just went up to silver lake and pulled ivy off the side of a house on a hill for nine hours and they paid me seven bucks an hour and they said you know you work hard come back tomorrow and then i came back and dug ditches and that was about it and eventually i figured out My boss told me if you get a pickup truck, I was riding a motorcycle, pickup truck, you'll get another dollar an hour. And so I found an old-use pickup truck, and that's what I drove. And I got another dollar an hour, and I I figured out if I bought some tools and maybe learned how to use them, I could get 10 bucks an hour, become a carpenter. Either way, I wouldn't have to dig ditches all day, literally. So I I figured it out. And uh, at some point, I, I became a carpenter. And at some point, I kind of realized that I, I'm a car guy, and I couldn't afford anything but a pickup truck. I couldn't afford to have a Datsun Z car or Camaro or Trans Am or anything. And just something, just something like loving cars. And knowing that you're, you're, you're basically handcuffed to drive this pickup truck for the rest of your life, and you can't afford insurance on a second car, and you're going to live in an apartment, and you got to park your sports car out on the street so it can get broken into, just that alone made me think, you know, i got do I got to do something else. So I just started thinking about comedy. And I thought I could do it. And I started working on it and working on it. spent years working on it. And uh, at some point, I met Jimmy Kimmel because I was also a part-time boxing coach. And he was doing a boxing match because he worked for K-Rock Radio. And they hmm. were doing a morning show stunt. He was the morning, he was the sports guy on the local radio station.
1: That was your your transition into it. So what was the first cool car that you were really proud of?
2: Um, God. I. I got a BMW M3 at a certain point because it was funny. I got this Maxima and I was driving around, you know, doing TV shows and showing up. I remember pulling up to the Playboy Mansion in this Maxima and, like, the producers of the show were having a party up there. went, what the hell are you driving a Nissan for? And to me, I was like, are you kidding? This is a sweet ride. And they were like, why why aren't you driving a BMW or Mercedes? Uh, I got a BMW M3. That was was probably my first cool car.
1: Mine was a 69 AMX. Remember that car? Limited production, two-seat?
2: Sure, yeah. I I raced with some of those guys in Trans Am. There's a couple of AMC cars out there in uh, the vintage Trans Am world. And uh, the AMX, probably the only cool thing uh, America Motors ever made.
1: I, I agree. I agree. Do you take driving trips? Is that something you do in your free time? Will you drive up the coast and things like that?
2: Uh, I do more like put the car in the trailer, take it to up the coast to Laguna Seca to the racetrack and, and race it. I will take a road trip. Yeah, I will, I will. we will tow the car. I will drive up there, but I also drive at the track.
1: I loved your book, In 50 Years Will All Be Chicks. I know I'm going back a few years, but I love that freaking book. So, what year did you write it? Uh,
2: Your uh, listeners would probably have to Google it, but it's probably about, it's got to be at least eight, nine years old. I mean, it's probably, you know, probably like 2009, uh, 2010, something something like that.
1: So, let's assume that that we're 20% of the way there of the 50 years that we're year 10. You think your prediction is on track?
2: <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. I do get some tweets like guys wearing culottes and dogs at the airport with you know guys carrying around tools at the airport and stuff. And people tweet me all the time like, "Oh, it's happening a lot faster than that. It is weird. I I I named the book that for a reason. It was it was the first comedy book I'd ever written. The publisher said. Call it whatever you want, and that's just what I felt like calling because I was feeling what was going on in the in the zeitgeist, and and I, I was tapping into something. And as it turns out, yeah, it is kind of that way. Like I, I it, there, it, it took a lot less than fifty years to get there.
1: What is your worst show sure. business night ever? Was there a night when you said to yourself, "What am I freaking doing, man"?
2: In, uh, yeah, in comedy? Yeah, at a certain point, when I was about 20, oh god, I must have been 26 or 27 and I, it, I'd been at comedy for about five years and it just, it wasn't working and I decided I needed like a change of venue or something. I needed to go to some town and do comedy and live there and I, A room opened up in Oakland, California. A friend of mine was in a house with like three guys and one of the rooms opened up and I packed up my pickup truck and I was going to go to Oakland and I was going to start doing comedy as a, you know, as a regular at Obama. And and there was a club outside of uh, San Francisco called Rooster T Feathers and somehow somebody knew somebody there and they got me an audition on a Thursday night. And I, I drove out there and, and I just bombed for 10 minutes and, and it was just bad. And, you know, she didn't want to hire me. And I remember just driving back to the Bay area and and it was raining and I was driving my pickup truck and I was literally going over like the Golden Gate bridge or the Oakland Bridge, or the Bay Bridge, or whatever it was. And I really was contemplating just driving off of the bridge. Like, I just thought, it, it can't get any worse than this. You'll you're never amount to anything. You're going to go back to L.A., you're going to pick up a shovel, and you're just going to die on some construction site. And that, that was about the bottom for me.
1: But you didn't. You kept going, didn't you?
2: I think... By virtue of the fact that we're having this conversation today and I'm sitting in my Jaguar and I'm pulling <laughs> up to my shop filled with Paul Newman race cars, I would say it's a safe bet to say I didn't, John.
1: Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. Neither did I when somebody said you, you'll never freaking be on television, Taffy. You're too old. You're not good enough, working <laughs> enough. It'll never happen. You know, there's a lesson here. <laughs> you know, and, you, and you've actually, to be serious for a minute, buddy, you, you've been a great example to so many of us. You know, the, the, you're shifting from industry to industry, your success, the fact that, that you're so authentic to yourself, Adam, that, you know, people should remember that you didn't become Adam Carolla overnight, and I certainly didn't become well-known overnight. This is hard, man. And you think of all the gigs and all the hours. So anybody who's having a night like you did that night should remember we've all had them. And it, oh, yeah. it's how we lick our wounds and stand up and go at it the next day that matters, man. You agree?
2: There is no choice. It's not like there's another way to do it. There's one way to do it. Get back up and go at it the next day. Yeah.
1: And the great thing about it is is uh, uh, the next projects are even better or even more exciting. Anything you want to talk about that's coming up?
2: No, I got a new doc coming up. Another really good doc called Uppity. And you can go to Chassis, C H A S S Y dot com and pre order that. And you can just listen to me at, uh, at adamcarolla dot com and listen to a free podcast.
1: I've been listening to you for years, Adam. Thanks for being here, buddy. It was a pleasure.
2: Thanks, John. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Talk soon.
1: You know, one of the most powerful moments ever. In my career was when I did uh, Operation Puerto Rico for Bar Rescue. And uh, to commemorate that, I did the only live podcast we've ever done at Flappers Comedy Club. It's some of my favorite moments ever from our No Excuses podcast. Take a listen. So we were going to do a hurricane episode down in Houston. And uh, by the time we got all of our efforts and coordination together, Houston had already gotten better. (laughs) Repairs had been made. The city wasn't in trouble anymore. So we couldn't go down to Houston and do a hurricane rescue that wasn't real. So we shut down production. I guess it was five or six weeks. Six weeks, we realigned everything, put all of our logistics towards Puerto Rico to try to really make a difference. We had advanced teams down there five, six weeks ahead of time. Chaz was was a champion for making this happen through the network, pushing it through issue after issue after issue. Then suddenly Spirit stepped up. Then Home Depot stepped up. The network stepped up. Different people stepped up. And suddenly it happened. It was the most powerful two weeks I've ever had on Bar Rescue. Because in Bar Rescue, typically I can blame that owner for the situation they're in. You're failing because of you, buddy right you're the one who caused this that was not the case with janet and victor and when you see how good they were and you saw it and how much they don't deserve this pain it's the ultimate lesson of how unfair life is and only we can correct unfairness that's up to us nature doesn't correct unfairness humans do and this was an opportunity to try to change the unfairness that happened there. Here's what was really powerful to me, and I want to bring my friend Maria Menunos and Kevin Undergaro up in a minute. And, and, you know, Phil, come up here for a minute. Come on, buddy. You didn't know I was going to do this, Tom. I've been doing things to you for years that you haven't expected, so grab a seat, buddy. Talk to me for a moment about your very first bar rescue experience.
4: my very first bar rescue experience was, um, we're in Vegas. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Devin was there. Um, (laughs) yeah, we were in Vegas and quite honestly, you know, I get, I get asked the same question all the time. Is it real? And I swear to God, the first time I was on the show, I went to the producers, I said, how do you want me to act? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, they're like, what do you mean? I said, how do you want me to act up here? Like, what do you want me to do? And they said, just go be you, just do what you do. And I was like, okay, you know. And John embraced me and he said, listen, I just want you to do what you normally do in real life. So that was my first episode ever, you know. And it was pretty intense. It was really intense, actually. Which one was it? That was the uh, bacon bar. The bacon bar episode. That was a great episode. Yeah.
1: We actually put out a very important statistic in that episode. Do you remember what it was? The statistic came from Stanford University, and the interesting part of this statistic is it tells you, with of all the resources and money that our universities have, this was the piece of research they gave us. <laughs> 54% of men would rather have bacon than sex. That was the research that they gave us in that episode, right? Yeah. Now, I'd like to see one guy in this room who goes along with that statistic. Look around. There's not one hand up. So I questioned the whole research to begin with. Yeah,
4: yeah. That was the
1: bacon bar episode, and that was an interesting dynamic because we caught one of the sons stealing from the family.
4: Yeah, there was all kinds of shady stuff going on. There was stuff in the tip jar and not putting money in the register. And the, the guy was about 80 years old, the grandfather. Yeah. Um, and he was putting all his money into it. It was just it was a sad thing. So... I was already angry about that bartender His name was Justin So when we got into the stress test I wasn't letting him, you know, get by with anything at that point
1: My favorite Phil Wills moment in any bar rescue Was the moment Phil puked (laughs) We were doing a rescue at a bar called Fairways Why are we talking about it? And there was was some Guinness draft beer I'm guessing that keg was probably as old as Phil was
4: But tell them (laughs) what
1: happened, tell them the story
4: You know, we went in there, and and, uh, I wanted to drink a dark beer, a stout, a Guinness. And she said, you know, there's not a lot left. And I said, well, just pour what you have. Because we were under the impression that their beers weren't pouring correctly. There was foam coming out, so I wanted to taste the temperature. (laughs) You don't taste the temperature on a Guinness beer that's been sitting there for about two years and hasn't been poured. So literally, it hit my lips, and it went down my throat. And I was sitting up at the bar, and we had ordered all this food. And I said, what am I going to do now? I need to puke. And you know, I probably should have just puked all over the bar top, but it would have been great TV <laughs> yeah, actually. Oh
2: yeah.
4: uh, but I ran and I just I just lost my shit in the in the bath in the bathroom. I Had Chaz it. been on set, you probably would have puked on the bar. <laughs> yeah. A- <laughs>
1: yeah, we call back that all the time. So so, so uh, uh, that was one of my favorite Phil Wills moments. What you don't know about Phil is we have a little MCR Master Controller man, we watch the video monitors. And I'll go into, and I'll do the sit-downs, and I'll talk to people, and Phil will sit in the MCR. Big, tough Phil Wills cries like a baby when he's in that MCR. When when we get into these emotional moments, and it's not only Phil, it's Vic Vegas. Big, tough Vic (laughs) Vegas cries like a freaking baby on set. Every minute that we're there, we all do. And that's why Bar Rescue works, because we all are connected to these people. We all cry. We're all connected to it. Puerto Rico was really powerful to me. Here's what really blew me away about Puerto Rico. When I got there and I was driving through the SUV, you saw the scene where I was driving around the mountain, and I bet this got to you too. And I remember driving around in New Orleans after Katrina. There were American flags everywhere. I remember driving after Superstorm Sandy, right, through Far Rockaway, New York. Those of you who have seen that episode, there were American flags everywhere. And I remember when we were down in Baton Rouge with Big Mike's, There are American flags everywhere. When I went to Puerto Rico and drove down the streets and saw all that destruction, there were American flags everywhere, not Puerto Rican flags. There are American flags hanging on those buildings. Those people didn't think of themselves as Puerto Ricans. They thought of themselves as Americans. And they acted that way. And that was where their loyalty and that was where their hope lied was in that American flag. And we blew it. And just two days ago, an article came out in the paper. I I mentioned it in last week's podcast about how FEMA blew it and how they're saying they blew it now. And how seven months later, what you and I saw was so devastating down there.
4: It was just crazy. Seven months afterwards, this is an an American, you know, part of America. And they didn't even have electricity. We were down there, we were losing electricity. Three times we lost power. Constantly. And that just didn't make any sense to me, you know? The way it was.
1: So try to donate. Try to give something if you can. Just a couple of dollars means a lot down there. Think about it. The average family, as of of average household, has about two and a quarter people in it. And their average median or the median household income is about $18,000 a year with two and a half people in that house. So this is a crisis down there in they Americans. So let's not forget about them. Mm -hmm. Buddy, thank you for coming down and helping us us do that. It's awesome. Thank you. Bill Wells, everybody. (laughs) The next clip is from our highest rated podcast of all time, El Presidente, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. I know you started in University of Michigan, and, yep. and, and I believe what because of your sister, you went there, right?
5: Yeah, so my sister was a senior when I was a freshman. I visited her when I was high school, and as a high school student's prone to do, you love the place. So I applied to the liberal arts school, actually got denied. They said, nope, you're not accepted here. For whatever reason, though, they said, we think you'd be a great nurse, and if you want to come to the nursing <laughs> school, you can't. So I said, I called up my sister last night. I said, hey. I've been accepted to the nursing program. I don't really know what this means. I know I don't want to be a nurse. I pass out when I see blood. But if I go there for a semester, can I just transfer where I want to be? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Once you're in the school, you can kind of maneuver around the different, whether it be education, nursing. So I ended up in Michigan, and I went to a liberal arts program and did a four-year degree there. Wow.
1: So so you left Michigan. What I found really interesting, because I read about you, buddy was yep. when you got out of college, you had no intention of getting a job.
5: I always knew I wanted to try my own thing. Now, I graduated at a time when the economy was booming. Dot-com was just booming. So I did have a sales job for about three or four years out of college, and I did great. I was a good salesman, um, and to be honest, it helped with the entrepreneurial side. I always knew I wanted to try my own thing. And when I finally did with Barstool Sports, you know the, jo- the first job I had – they just put a yellow pages in front of me. I had to sell software. And they didn't give me any tips. They just said, go through and just sell it whoever you can. So it was as rudimentary sales as you could ever have. Dialing for dollars, cold calling. It was good. It was a good experience. And it helped actually launch Barstool because when I started the company, I was able to sell basically a year's worth of advertising for for nothing. I was selling basically this image of a gambling newspaper, but it wasn't out yet. We had no product, but it was all the sales bath- background. and really just calling everybody and their mother you know until I had enough yeses where I had the money that I knew I could at least survive for a year. I, I, there was a bunch of different ideas that I that I basically had in my mind for Barcel. I knew I wanted to try something. Um, the three concepts I had was Barcel Sports, which was basically a four to eight page gambling fantasy sports newspaper slash rag. The other one was uh, a used furniture company for college students. Every time a semester ends, basically all you, you go to any college town, there's all this furniture out on the corner that people are throwing away. So my concept was, Get a huge truck in a warehouse, grab all this furniture for free, store it, and then sell it for pennies on the dollar to all the kids moving in. And they could all find it online again. It was the dot com era, so you could go online and look for it. That was one concept. And the third was the scouting concept for uh, basically division two, II, division three athletes. Athletes are students who wanted to play sports in college but weren't heavily recruited. And coaches, Division three, who may not have huge budgets to recruit, the school doesn't really care if you win or lose, but the coach still wants to win, and the kid still wants to play sports in college. So there's a way to connect college coaches with high school athletes, not Division one powerhouse, but people who just want to play sports in college, kind of like myself, like a Division three type caliber athlete. Okay, so you oh, form Barstool here. Sports.
1: Now, you and I have something in common. I created Bar HQ, my app, and what I did before I built it is I sold all the advertising to anheuser Bush in advance, and then I used their money to build my app, and then I sold it. Sound familiar?
5: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the key in why so many things in my industry, uh, the media, you know, it's great to have these ideas and concepts, but if you can't sell it and you're not willing to be the person on the phone, you know, doing the deal – he, 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 how are you going to survive? So I, I had an advantage over people doing what I was doing, and that I really came at it much stronger from the business. Not, it wasn't, hey, I want to be a journalist and write funny stories. It was how do I make a business? How do I make this work? And that was the sales. Uh, you know, the newspaper, when I launched it, I was the only employee, and it would say to contact, uh, you know, sales, do Joe at Barstool Sports. If you want to contact – PR contact bill at Barcel Sports had all these aliases so people would think we were much bigger than we actually were. So the fact so of the, the matter is being an
1: entrepreneur means you got to knock on doors, make the phone calls. It didn't freaking come easy, did it?
5: No, and I you know, I'm sure you know this. this is one thing. A lot of people love talking about being an entrepreneur, um, but it it not everybody wants to do, you know, the heavy lifting that's involved in it. Now don't get me wrong, I would rather do nothing else. I had no problem waking up. I used to wake up at 5 a.m. every single day, hand out the newspapers at the subway. Uh, I would go home. I would write my articles and stuff like that. And Then I'd head back to the subway to hand out the newspapers again. I used to deliver them all myself. It was like a 48-hour paper route where I'd stick them in a van and just drop, drop them off nonstop. It was a bear. I mean, I didn't take a day off for 10 years, but it was the best 10 years, and, and it beat the hell out of when I was working for somebody else before that, uh, but it's a lot of work, but you're going to love it, and I did. So the fact of the matter is it didn't happen
1: overnight. You had to work your butt off to make it happen, and then uh, 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 you started to associate yourself with a number of people around you, and you grew out across the country. So you started cash flowing, and then you really invested back into the business.
5: Yeah. So, you know, we started in 2004 and I'd say about around 2007, 2008, I was starting to finally say, all right, I may not be rich doing this, but I'm going to be able to carve a living doing something that I enjoy working for myself. And that was the primary goal when I started it. But as Boston started taking off, I said, you know, if I can replicate this in other in other cities, I may really have something. So we started looking for other guys. We found uh Kevin Clancy, New York, Dan, Big Cat, who you obviously know well in Chicago. Yeah. We found Smitty in Philadelphia. So we started expanding to other cities, trying to replicate the model of what we had here in Boston. Now, these weren't aliases. These were actually people. <laughs> these were real people. Real people. So, real people. so you know, now full-time salaries.
1: So now, absolutely. Now you got salaries. You got benefits. You got all this stuff to worry about. You're a multi-city operation. Okay. So you're in Boston. You now got Barstool Sports going a bunch of cities. You got a payroll going. You got some good advertisers. You've struggled through the shift to digital. You're still sort of a content and a sales organization, though, because you're still surviving on sponsor checks, right, to keep payroll going and all of that. And then you get a phone call to sell the company to a large
5: media organization, right? Is that what happened? Yeah. So the churning group. Now, we'd always – gotten nibbles, whether it be from VCs, angels, it never went very far because our content was always, I would say, risque, on the edge, pushing the envelope. But I believe that was what separated us. It was being authentic and true to the brand. So uh, a guy, Mike Kearns, uh, reached out to me from the churning group, and he used to be at Yahoo. I think he ran sports at yahoo.com, and he had tried to tell Yahoo they should do business with us, and they weren't interested. He left Yahoo, was hired by Churning Digital. His first call was to me. He said, I'm a fan. I've always been a fan. Uh, are you interested in investment of anything like that? I said, listen, I'll listen to you. I'm always open. And he went. So I talked to him on a Thursday. He lived in San Francisco on Friday. He was in Boston to talk to me. That in itself spoke volumes to me. I always judge that, by the way, uh, John, how people when they say they're interested. All right. Well, we'll prove it. I mean, I'm here. And he did. So that added a level of credibility. He essentially said, we love the content. If I gave you money or churn gave you money, what would you do with it? And it was this concept of relocating everybody from the different cities, uh, Dan in Chicago, Kevin in New York, myself in Boston, uh, all under one roof in New York to create the first sort of blog reality company. You know, mix everything, reality TV, blogging, all the things that were at the forefront of emerging technology internet, and internet, and build what people now know as Barcelona Sports. I made sure I'd have complete editorial control, total content control. A lot of people are like, there's no way Turner would give that to you. They did. So I have final say on everything. And that really, that infusion of capital that they gave us about two and a half, almost three years ago, really, you know, was putting gasoline on us. And we were this engine that was ready to go, but they're their finances, their expertise, and really the help on a lot of things that were just stressed so thin really took Barstool to the next level. Okay. My Boston buddy moves to New York City. I'm a New York City boy. What
1: do you think of New York?
5: Oh, I hate it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so dirty, John. I love Boston. I, I underestimated how much I would dislike New York when I moved here. The streets stink. The city smells. There's trash everywhere. Uh, now, was it the right move for the company? Yes. We're trying to be this uh, emerging media business, and there's more going on here. It's easier to attract talent. There's a bigger talent pool, both for you know content and tech. Uh, so it was we want not have our CEO, Erica, who's brilliant if we were still in Boston. But I hate the city. I hate the Yankees. I hate the teams. I hate the streets. I hate the people. I hate it all.
1: You hate the Yankees. The Yankees. Oh, geez. OK. So, so uh, uh, OK, thinking about New York for a minute, you and I have done pizza reviews together.
5: You're the only guy we've done two reviews. You're the number one fan of everybody in the pizza reviews. Ah, that's great.
1: Want, I thought the honeycomb thing got you during the pizza review. I thought you were pretty impressed with the whole honeycomb thing. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> so, okay, I'm just going to ask you, give me a yes or no. Whose pizza is better? Or give me a New York or Boston? New York or Boston? Come on. I mean, that's
5: a trick. It's a trick question.
1: It's not a trick question. Which pizza do you like more, New York or Boston?
5: I'm wondering. It's a trick question. I'm, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to answer why it's a trick question. <laughs> New York has more good pizza but more bad pizza. There's just so many places.
1: If you were to find the best pizza in New York compared to a best pizza in Boston, who has quantitatively the best pizza in New York? Quantitatively,
5: Boston? there's more better pizza in New York. But- oh, okay. <laughs> I Talk is the talk. <laughs> By the way, shout out for anyone listening. We just launched our, our new pizza app. It's called One Bite. One Bite dot app. Last time I checked, it was number two or number three on all the the food. So it was like Uber Eats, McDonald's, and the One Bite app. One, two, three. That's awesome, buddy. If people haven't checked out your pizza app, where can they get that? So it's, uh, it's one bite dot out. Just go to the iTunes store, and it's right there. And Barstool Sports, you can find everywhere.
1: Facebook, Twitter, it's on every social media account. And El Presidente.
5: Stool it, Presidente is my handle. El Pres is what people call me. Yo. Yep.
1: Anyway, thanks, buddy. It was great to talk to you. Let's talk soon.
5: All right. Absolutely, John. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Dude. Well, another week of NFL and NCAA football is gone. And you've learned a lot more than you knew the week before. So why don't you use some of that pigskin knowledge and take it to the bank with BetDSI.com. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online, and they've built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right, deposit your money, and they'll double it up to $2,500 for free. That's double your money right from the get-go. When it comes to football, BetDSI has every wage you could ever imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on it. You can bet on the NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, esports, NHL, and other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll right out of the gate. So use promo code taffer 101 to get any action and get paid join BetDSI today hey it's john and the new year is almost here so i gotta ask you what's your new year's resolution if you're planning to be healthier it all starts with a good night's rest you know it's changed my life you've heard me tell the story about tossing and turning headaches back pains but after my pillow i wake up feeling great it's amazing what a difference a good pillow makes MyPillow had a Christmas special. It was such an amazing deal, and the good news is that they've extended that Christmas special. That's right, they've extended it. Right now, when you go to MyPillow.com and click on the Christmas special, here's what you'll find. It's the lowest price MyPillow has ever offered for their four-pack, and it includes free shipping. It gets better. Their 60-day money-back guarantee has been extended through March 1st. Best price ever, free shipping, extended money-back guarantee. What else do you need? Go to MyPillow.com, click on a Christmas special, and enter my promo code TAFFER, and you'll get two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows. There's nothing better than the gift of a great night's sleep. Go to MyPillow.com, click on a Christmas special, and use my code TAFFER to get two premium pillows and two go-anywhere pillows. Again, best price ever for a four-pack free shipping and extended money-back guarantee through March 1st. Go to MyPillow.com, click on a Christmas special, and enter the promo code TAFFER. It's fun when I get to put a friend on a show and a fellow Las Vegas resident. My next segment is from Terry Fader who's one of the greatest ventriloquists in the country and winner of America's Got Talent. Take a listen. Did you make a living as a ventriloquist before America's Got Talent?
6: I did. And I had actually kind of grown um, in my ability as a ventriloquist uh, pretty remarkably and and I, I was twenty years. I started a band because I wanted to sing because i I knew that I was a singer. And that's, you know, kind of, I wanted to sing almost as much. My, my real goal in life, though, was to be a ventriloquist. I wanted to be a professional ventriloquist. And I would look at people like, um, uh, you know, uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Paul Winchell and think, OK, that's, sure. I want to do that. But I also could sing. So I started a band, but I, I mixed ventriloquism and singing. And I would I had this band. We were a country rock band. We go all over the country. And every 10 minutes I would pull out a puppet. You know, I have this Elvis Presley puppet, and I would pull out an Elvis puppet, or I'd pull out my country puppet, and he'd sing some Garth Brooks or some or some uh, Dwight Yoakam, and then I would pull out another puppet, or you know, and I would do. Uh, I, I used to do this Michael Jackson impression. You saw Michael Jackson in my show. I, I did. Um, and I would I would be Michael Jackson. I'd put on a wig and sunglasses, and then my country puppet would kind of be like, "What the heck is this?" You know, he was so <laughs> it was just a funny a funny idea that how a how an old country singer would would react to Michael Jackson. Um, and, and so I would, uh, so we would do all of this. And then, uh, about in 2000, I think it was maybe 2001. I just said, you know, I, I think it's time I was in my, I think I was in my thirties uh, yeah and I said, it's really time for me to just pursue this dream. I want to be a professional ventriloquist, uh, full time. And, wow. uh, and then I, I would play fairs and schools and I was making an okay living. I mean, I was never going to get rich and famous and I certainly was never going to, you know, get all my bills paid off doing what I was doing, but I was, uh, but I was able to um, to do what I loved
1: and, and make, master your craft
6: yeah, and make a decent living. And so I was out there doing doing this for uh, for many, many, many years before America's Got Talent. And I think so, when I turned 40, I gave up the dream of having my own Vegas show because I had been rejected so many times. And the uh, the people in Vegas had told me, you're just not you're never going to make it in Vegas. It's just not Vegas is not right for you. And so I was like, well, uh, you know, I always I've been dreaming of it since I was 14. And then uh, America's Got Talent changed all that.
1: So when you went on a hoot, did somebody come up to you and say, you need to do America's Got Talent? Or was that a determination you made on your own?
6: No, it was everybody came up and told me. Um, the interesting thing about that was that I was I was performing at fairs all over the country. And um, uh, so during the, the summer, during the fair season, you know, you go in and you play the Iowa State Fair and the Minnesota State Fair, yep. it was State Fair. And that first year that it was on, I didn't even know anything about it. And I mean, every time I would finish a show... People, I would get barraged with people coming up going, have you seen this show, America's Got Talent? You need to go on it. You need to go on it. You need to go on it. So unbeknownst to me, they were – these same people were emailing NBC and telling them they saw this amazing ventriloquist and that they need to get me on America's Got Talent. So I actually got a call from uh, from NBC asking if I would – they said, listen, this is – it's so remarkable. You know, We're getting all of these calls about this uh, – about this guy. And, uh, are you, would you go on the show? And I, and I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know, wow. So they let me audition. And, uh, you know, I, of course I had to audition like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they did, they did actually contact me and call me about that. So,
1: wow. So were you terrified when you did it the first time? I mean, you've been no, on stage, I, you've
6: been, I really wasn't. And the reason I wasn't was because um, they, I just, I'm, I'm so used to doing this, you know, I had done it for 20 years almost every single day. So I just got up and did what I always do. And here's a different thing though, about me than, than many other people. And that is that I, I like to, um, I, I, I like to perform. So I would always carry one of my puppets with me. Um, <laughs> I would carry a puppet with me while I was, uh, a, if I went to a party, I'd have puppets in my in my in my trunk, the trunk of my car, and I would say, "Hey, tell them that I tell them that I, I, I want to perform if they let me." So I was used to getting up in front of living rooms and and performing for people. So it was not hard to get up in front of the six people or the three judges. You know, it was really easy to do because I was I had kind of trained myself to do it. I just love to entertain. Even now, how many? I, I just went on vacation to uh, to. Um, we went to Italy and France, and we were on a tour group, and we had about forty people in the tour group. Mm-hmm. And I had a puppet in my suitcase, and I said, "If they want, I'll do a little show for them." I got up and did a show for for the for all of them, uh, acapella. I don't need music or anything. I like having music, <laughs> uh, but it's just it's it's a passion. I love 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 doing it. You know, wow. so it's it's not work for me; it's play.
1: I'm the same way. If they weren't paying me, I'd still do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we're blessed with the opportunity to do that. Okay, so how many appearances on America's Got Talent until you win?
6: I did about, uh, I think it was five, maybe six. Um, maybe six songs, five appearances. And, um, and and you know, I just, it was so, it, it just was not, um, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. I, I had seen how people responded to this stuff all through um, my you know, the last maybe five years of, uh, you know, I didn't really mix the, marry the, the ventriloquism and impressions until later, um, until later on in my, in my career. So, um, that's a large
1: part of the formula that I think has made you so successful. So
6: you I, no, had, it actually was. So I had already seen though, how people responded to me. So I was like, yeah, you know, people really like this, so I, I know they're going to. I know America's going to love this. I didn't think I'd win the show for crying out loud! I mean, that's that. That was
1: my next question. So oh. after the, after the first night, you go back to your hotel room. What'd you think?
6: Mm-hmm. Oh well, I thought that went really well. My goal was to get on the show, uh, get on two to three episodes if I was lucky, make a DVD of all the judges saying really good things about me and my appearances, and then using it to sell my my show and and make it easier to book and maybe raise my prize. You know, so, I, so I,
1: you're. You were hoping for a promo video out of the deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so was there any point the third, fourth appearance when you went back to your hotel room and said, wow, I got this. I'm going to win no, this.
6: Never. No. I was I was the guy that was convinced the other guy was going to win until right. until they said my name. No one was more stunned. I was gobsmacked when they said my name. Well, I watched and, the
1: video last night, and that was my question because you were obviously shocked. I just wanted to know if that was
6: as oh, real no, as possible. Totally oh, That was totally real. I – one hundred percent thought they were going to say the other guy's name. I didn't know what to do, and and the funny thing about that is I wasn't a hundred percent sure I heard my name, so I didn't want to like make a fool out of myself and get all people <laughs> start celebrating. Because, but then I thought I, I just and then I turn and I see my name in my peripheral vision and behind me, and Jerry Springer puts his arm around me. He was the host, yeah. and then the guy who came in, who eventually came in second, that I was convinced was going to win it, he puts his arm around me, and and I, I mean it just was. I just, just never thought it would happen. I just never, I, you know, I, I didn't, and I mean, I was prepared, you know, I was prepared for it, but good Lord, it was quite so, the, uh, so
1: it's a so little reality check here. You had given up on having your Vegas show. Mm-hmm. You went into this hoping to get a promo video, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never thinking that you were going to win. And from this, you were going to go back on the road with a new promo video and hopefully make a few more dollars uh, yeah. uh, and, and try to advance your career.
6: You, yeah, you, my, my you dream, wind up. Yeah. Rich and rich and famous was over at that point. You know, Yes. Uh, but sure. you know, this is what I tell people, though. You know, I say, look, it's fine to give up on the dream. It's not fine to stop working toward the dream. Right. You know, if, if you believe the dream is over, fine. But as long as you're working for it, literally anything can happen. And I'm living proof of that. 42 years old. And I got all my dreams to come true. And you want to know why? It's because I continued to, to say, I don't care if I ever get rich and famous. I want to be the be- best ventriloquist in the world. Period. For me, not for anybody else or for any other reason. I don't want to do it because I want to be rich and pregnant. I want to do it for my own, for my own pride, just because I want to be able to say I'm doing the best I can and I'm the best I can be at that. And well, that's Terry, why-
1: I, I've been doing this for 35 years. I think I've seen everybody in the business. You, my friend, are the best I have ever seen. Well, thank you. So That's I think.
6: Kind of that, uh, that,
1: no, you've achieved that.
6: Considering the work I've put in. <laughs>
1: no, it, you can see the hours that you've spent in front of a mirror, your timing with the puppets, your, even your own body language. I mean, you've got this just so down. It's just so well done. And you can see it, it's so personal to you. It's not mechanical at any point. Your connection with the audience was instant. Okay. So suddenly you win. America's got talent. When did you realize that you could make it in Vegas? Did Vegas call you? Did you reach out to yeah. them? Did, well, how did that happen?
6: See, there's again, I, I'm a I'm a b- very strong believer in God, and and I mean very strong. I pray before every single show. We get together with my with my backstage crew. We hold we uh, uh, gather around in a circle and pray. And I pray that God uses me to uh, to uh, bless people and to uh, and to you know to have have them feel His Spirit through my performance. And and I just believe that it was orchestrated by by the heavens, God, whatever, if you want to, don't call it God or whatever you call it. And because unbeknownst to me, I had absolutely no idea this was going on behind the scenes all through the season. Now, I I did not know that the Mirage was looking for a new headliner. I had no idea. Um, I had come to Vegas and done and done a showcase for some producers. And all three of them said, "Ah, no, this will never fly in Vegas. We're just it's just not right for Vegas, you know. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to play Vegas. I did not know, but the but the president of the Mirage and the and the uh, the higher ups said the executives at the MGM had been watching me on America's Got Talent, and the president of the Mirage said if he wins, we're going to offer him a contract. And I had no idea that, that was going on, but that was all happening as as I'm doing this now. I signed with the Las Vegas Hilton first which was mm-hmm. perfect because what happened was they, they got to see what the response of people was. My show in, at the Las Vegas Hilton sold out in four hours before there was any promotion at all. No, They, had, they didn't put a billboard up. They, 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 nobody even knew it was there. But after I won America's Got Talent, um, the switchboards of like Vegas.com and all that, they were barraged with tens of thousands of calls. When's Terry Fader playing Vegas? When's Terry Fader? So basically, uh, as soon as the show uh, was announced... It immediately sold out, <laughs> so <laughs> so the Mirage gets to come over and see me play to this packed house at the Hilton, uh, getting you know multiple standing ovations. People are going crazy, and they're going, "Yeah, this is our guy." And so uh, so after I finished with my contract, I had a year that uh, doing three shows a, a month at uh, at the Hilton. They uh, they came over and they said, "We want you to play Vegas," and I said, "Okay." Uh, we want you to play the Mirage, and I said, "Okay."
1: <laughs> well, the next clips are probably one of my favorite guests ever on a No Excuses podcast, and a dear friend of mine. We've been very supportive and and worked with each other many times over the years. Jenny McCarthy knows how to get to the point, and Jenny is incredibly open. In this podcast, she talked about things that she's never publicly talked about before, relating to her childhood, jumping out of a back window to avoid police officers. It's an incredible story, and it was a great time with Jenny. This is a clip. That you'll really enjoy So you were a ham when you were a kid.
7: <laughs> I was a ham with my with my friends, you know, like I didn't let too many people see the goofy side until I was much older, but I was definitely um I definitely had a goofy side to me. I like making people laugh.
1: Were your parents more reserved?
7: Very reserved. Very uh they're sweet, but you know, my dad's Vietnam vet, my mm-hmm. mom, um, stay at home. Hard working, Catholic, very Catholic. She's like Mother Teresa, Mrs. Cunningham. And you know, they you know, proud of their four girls. My dad worked three jobs, put through Catholic school, so I didn't want to be a disappointment or get into trouble. So I was kind of more reserved in front of them. And then, uh, like I said, when I got to college, I oh, had fun with, with following the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: so uh, when you were leaving college, had you decided, I'm going to Hollywood w- w- early when you were in college? Or this was something that dawned later? Or did you always know you were going to do that?
7: I always had this dream to go there, but it was, you know, it was laughed at when I said it. It was like, oh, right. I grew up so um, lower middle class. Those dreams were impossible. So it was more like your butt to college. When I went to school, I only lasted about two years before the police came knocking on my dorm room to arrest me. I was bouncing checks for food at that point. I was writing out $2 checks for Chinese food, and I bounced about 35 of them. Um, I was also, here's my entrepreneurial side, I also was selling fake VIP parking classes to freshmen for 50 bucks, and I made about $3,000. <laughs> <laughs> but I had no way of paying for school, so I was literally living off of bouncing checks and selling these passes. And when the police came, my roommate said, the police are here to arrest you. And I opened up my bedroom window, jumped out, got my car, and I never went back to college. So uh-huh. when I drove home, I went, Mom, I need to come move back in. And I thought, you know, what the hell? I've got nothing to lose. Why don't I give it a shot now? The real dream. Wow.
1: <laughs> so, so you went out there. Crazy? It's interesting to both get away from where you were and to go to what you wanted, sort of both at the same time.
7: Exactly. It was kind of uh, it was kind of nutty how it all worked out. And then, you know, what does the girl do? I'm on the south side of Chicago. I've got no money. I'm in debt now, and I'm living in my mom's you know my old bedroom. So I literally had a, took a Polaroid camera, and I took. 60 selfies of myself with a Polaroid. I looked in the yellow pages, and I looked up modeling and commercial agencies, and I wrote to all of them, put my Polaroid inside, mailed them, and I waited. And I got one phone call out of all of them that said, come on down to downtown Chicago for an interview. I took the bus down there, and she said, "Um, I brought you here to tell you that you will never be a model, and you can just be a bartender. (sighs) Wow. <laughs> Which was incredibly disheartening, and I left.
1: But did that motivate you to try
7: Oh, yes. It's so much so, I still remember her name, and I uh, also sent her my first cover of Rolling Stone Autograph.
1: Okay, so you had to make some pretty tough decisions. So you, you grow up in, in a pretty reserved family, Catholic school girl, and you get a phone call from Playboy. How hard was that choice at the time?
7: Oh, my God, John. It was so hard because what happened was when that woman said no to me, I exited the building and was crying on the curb. And across the street was the the Playboy Building in Chicago, because that's where their headquarters were. And I was looking at the building and deciding, I went, wow, that was the Playboy Building. I wonder if I should go in there. I, in my heart, kept saying, no, are you crazy? Your mother's going to disown you. But I found myself walking across the street and ringing, and going up the elevator. I walked to the front desk, and I said, I don't want to pose or anything, but I just want to know how they do it. And the woman said, well, we've received 600,000 photos a year and have to pick 12. I said, okay. I turned around, pressed the elevator button, and an executive happened to be walking by. And he said, Hi are you here to inquire about being a playmate? I said, yes. And they said, well, we're having the photo shoes. You want to put on a bikini just take a test shot. And I thought, okay, what are the odds of this happening right now? And then I had to run through my head, like, did I shave my legs today? <laughs> like, I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> so I went in and took, like, a mug shot because I had no idea how to pose. And um, by the time I got home on the bus, ride, which was like an hour, there was had answering machines back in 1993. On the answering machine was, hi, this is Playboy magazine. We um, looked at your photos, and we decided to have you tested Miss October. So by the time I got home, I got a note that's saying it was Miss October. Now, here's the scary part. I had to tell my mother, a.k.a. Mother Teresa, and my dad, who worked three jobs to go to Catholic school, that I was about to pose nude for Playboy. So that this is terrible. Are you ready for my, my clever? So, tricky um trick. How did you I, enter
1: that conversation? I just want to hear the first line of how you entered that conversation. <laughs>
7: oh my god. This is not even worse. There's not even a first line. Are you ready? I yep. took some of the money that they gave me and I turned it. So when the magazine would come out, my mom and dad would be on their first vacation they'd ever gone on, which is a crew in somewhere far, far away. So <laughs> I them off. Oh, the my the Thinking that it would just blow over and no one would know. little didn't know. I was going to be on the news and on the front cover of the Chicago newspaper saying local girl who went to prestigious Catholic school poses for Playboy. I get phone calls from all my aunts and uncles who are nuns and priests and they damn me to hell. And I'm saying when my parents get home, they're going to damn you to hell. I'm crying. It was just the most horrible time of my life. And when I got home, my mom uh, cried and uh, my dad said, well, it was good couple worse. And uh, my mom eventually said after three days, you know what? You're my daughter. I love you. And I'll always stand by her side. And I said, listen, I promise you, this is going to be a stepping stone. I promise you just have faith. This isn't the finale. This is only the beginning. I needed to get to Hollywood and pay off the college debt. And that's exactly what I did. And they're still proud and standing by me.
1: So they get it now. I'm guessing. I'm guessing those photos aren't hanging over the fireplace in the living room, though.
7: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I will say that they um, they they've been with me when people come up and ask for autographs, and they realize now that they really, did, really did use it as a stepping stone. You know, a lot of girls when I was in the Playboy Mansion, that was their finale. They were like, "We made it." End of story. And I was looking around. Like, What are you talking about? I kept saying I wanted to get into comedy, I wanted to host, which by the way, people thought was a joke. They're like, playmates can't speak, playmates aren't funny, playmates don't make fun of themselves, and that was a whole other thing I had to try to knock down, was that, those doors that were closed, going, no, 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 sweetheart, we just need your boobs, shut up. Did you ever
1: realize how strategic you. you are in the way you think ahead and plan your life? Have you ever thought of yourself as strategic? But you are. Have you?
7: Hmm. Um, that's interesting. No, I, I guess not. I think, um, no, I guess not. But I have not been strategic. But, you're but right. you are. You never thought you, about it, but I guess so.
1: Well, when you talk to me about how Playboy was just a beginning, not an end. And where you had these visions, of you wanted to do this, this, and this, and then you put yourself on a process to get there, and you knew there was a beginning, and you knew there was a next step, and then you knew where you wanted to go on the end, and then you knew that you you are are, are surprisingly, and I'm not sure you realize it. That's why I was saying this: you're a very strategic thinker, a- and sometimes yeah, I think I that so. I work for it. yeah, that you're more strategic than you thought you are, and you know, there's a lesson in this. For everybody, for our listeners, and I know you know you are, are so into trying to make a difference, and so am I. There's something that I think everybody can learn from our talk today. First of all, Jenny McCarthy didn't happen overnight. It was really hard work, and every person I've ever spoken to says that. You don't become a household name easily. So you went to college. You got yourself in a jam. You overextended yourself because you believed in yourself. You worked really hard. You went to Hollywood. You got a gig. You went to Playboy. You had to literally expose yourself like you never have before to start your career. (laughs) It's an inspiration for others to to learn a few things. One, when somebody says no, it doesn't mean no. Use it as inspiration to turn it into a yes. Two, we all have to expose ourselves sometimes. You know, you did it. uh, 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 in Playboy. I do it in other ways. It's not easy to throw stuff and curse at people on television. So we all have to expose ourselves to get where we want to be. And and you've been exposing your your most self for so many years. And Jenny, that's what makes you special is that we all feel like we know you so well because you're so open. And, And that... Your desire and ability to expose yourself is what makes you so special. That's the lesson for everybody here, is that if we don't expose, we don't get anywhere. Do
0: you agree
7: with that? I would 100% agree with that. And, you know, it's just as it's healing for other people to hear our experiences, it's healing for us, too. So... It's a person that, if you guys are ever scared to expose yourself, know that there's heaven on the other side of it. Not only for the people you're helping, but for yourself. There's nothing better than living in your authentic self. Nothing's better. And other people are affected by it in the most positive way.
1: When you went through that first process of exposing yourself, wasn't there a great sense of pride in the fact that you had the courage to do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm. We're being physical now, but I'm referring to mental ex- exposing of oneself too, inner secrets, all that. Wasn't there a real sense of pride after you did it?
7: Absolutely. I mean, there was also a sense of pride with with Clayboy, um, because we were so in debt that I, I was determined to win the playmate of the Year and get my parents out of the kind of terrible neighborhood we lived in—gangs, bill, gunshots—and I used the money to buy them a house in a safe neighborhood, just sure, that alone felt so good. Like, wow. uh, that's still, like, one of my most prideful things. Like, we always, you know, you always see, like, even football players and people like that. If people take to contracts, they want to take care of their parents. It's something innate we have in us. So when I look back, I always go, God, I'm just so grateful. So, so grateful to God, my universe, with myself, to have the balls to do what I did, just to at least help my parents. Yeah.
1: And it's helped to find who you are good. today. It stayed with you all this time. And you think about the respect that you have gained from us all. I have huge respect for you, Jenny. I think you're just terrific. You know, I think that that Thank every you. person uh, can learn from getting inside Jenny McCarthy. And, you know, thanks for letting us in.
7: Thank you so much, John. And, you know, such a fan of yours, too. And give my, my love to your wife, will you?
1: Oh, I will, Jenny. And uh, we got to have lunch one day. Maybe all of us will grab some lunch Let's one day. I'll reach out. We'll make that happen, okay?
7: I would love nothing more. And Now not, I'm going to see you in January, but hopefully before.
1: Absolutely. So talk to you soon. Everybody, Jenny McCarthy. Thanks, Jen. Talk soon. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. How about the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions like navigation or moonroof and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew that was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas. Well, the next clip is really emotional to me. Johnny Greco is the vice president of entertainment for the Las Vegas Golden Knights NHL hockey team. And Johnny led all of the the, uh, festivities uh, when the team started, which was a week after the massacre in Las Vegas last year. I've never seen somebody in the entertainment business manage tragedy and pleasure better than Johnny did, uh, uh, and the whole story of the Las Vegas Golden Knights launch in Las Vegas. Now, I can remember when Johnny and I actually teared up talking about some of these things. Uh, these were heavy times, but Johnny was the master of delivering for Las Vegas. You'll see what I mean. What I am so excited about talking to you about, and the reason why I wanted you to come here, is is A, how you evolved in mm-hmm. sports. But, Johnny, you have a sensitivity in the way you 've gone about this last season that I think is remarkable. Thank you, and I want to talk about that in a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. but. You got out of college. Did you want to do feature yes. film production? Yeah.
3: I mean, I'm a Spielberg nerd, yep. man. Everybody <laughs> wants to make movies. Absolutely. I, I like a lot of a lot of guys and girls that went into the, the game presentation world and, and production world. You know, seven years old, you're grabbing mom and dad's video camera. Fortunately, mom and dad were hippies. Dad was at Woodstock. He was an artist, even though he was a veterinarian. But they were cool with me running around, making movies. And And all of a sudden, it's time to go to college. And I'm like... I still want to just make movies. And then a family friend turned you on to this school and they're like, hey, you can go to school for this. I didn't even think it was real, you know, like guidance, things guidance counselors don't tell you. And um, I went to school, uh, graduated with an associate's degree in film and video, and just got right to it. 19 years old, I started with the Florida Marlins. I didn't know So you went right into sports. I went went right into it. So I I, you know, the dream is go to LA, make movies. Well, I also, you know, was a very average athlete, but I loved sports. I grew up on sports. I loved, you know, Michael Jordan in the nineties, Chicago Bulls, and it was so much more than sports and and um you know, so I was just I was enamored by all of that. And then when it was a way to combine my, my lack of athleticism, but love for sports in a way to tell stories and captivate, I learned very quickly, like, oh, you know, when you go to these events, you go to these sporting, they have Kiss Cam and they have these videos with the mascots and they play music when the batter comes out. I, I was like, holy, I didn't. Yes, yeah, somebody's got to do that, right? right? So I started there with the Marlins, learned so much in three years there, had an incredible experience and then have been really lucky to kind of hop around with a few different sports teams along the way and a couple big events as well. You know, while I was going, I got to do um the olympics which was incredible two times and um you know again it's it, it is it's who you know definitely who knows you and really who likes you, you know, right, because to get in a circle, if you treat people the right way, I, I am not the most talented, most creative. I have the most creative people around me. I get to work with the most creative people. And, and if you can, you know, lead that and, and work with that and collaborate with that, you know, fortunately you get to kind of create magic sometimes. So well, bless. my
1: TV shows the same way. They make me look good every day. Don't there you they? go. Absolutely. Yep. So, same. Yeah. So, so, so when, when you think about production, you said a word three times that, that made me perk up. And I don't really hear a sports guy say this word. You said story three oh, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes back to your film production days. Yeah, And absolutely. people in the content business mm-hmm. forget yeah. that everything has to be a story. And Bar Rescue certainly is a story. Person in trouble. Absolutely. Struggles, resists change, mm-hmm. transforms, redeems, yep. hopefully happy ending or you bad hope. ending. Either way, but, yeah. <laughs> it's a story. Absolutely.
3: And, and so is what you do. So yeah. how do you extract a story? Yeah from a sports situation like that? That's a great question. And and the truth is stories have been around forever. People told them around campfires yeah. and, and, and um, you know, there's fossils to, to show this. Like people love stories, whether it's putting my kids to bed at night, telling them a story or a song is a story. And, you know, in the end, it's it's very basic. You have your beginning, your middle and your end. When you write a film or do a TV show, reality TV is a little bit different, but you, you want to pull the people in. You want an emotional response, and you want to have an arc where people grow and learn. And, and yep. hopefully by the end, you feel something, right? I've learned something. I feel pain. I feel joy. Yep, you connect. You connect with people. That's, that's everything. So in the sporting world, it's really different because there's natural drama. Like you go to a sporting event and it goes to double overtime and you, you're 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 sweating, you're excited, you're cheering, your voice is gone. But but what we do on the production end is you come up with a script, you prepare a, a nice event, an experience for these people, and and a reactionary experience you hope. Well, the minute the puck drops or the ball tips off or the first mm-hmm. pitch happens, most of it goes out the door. Like you 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 planned for this great experience, but if opening night, October tenth, we scored. Seventy five goals in that first period. It was unbelievable. Man. Like, you Three in five minutes, right? You, you could, yeah, you you can't write that. Like that's right. ridiculous. So so in that sense, sports was on our favor, but you can have some emotional uh this guy's retiring and you have a ceremony, it's gonna be this special night and your team gets, you know, destroyed, you know, ten nothing in a baseball game. It's like but, the energy's not there. So But
1: I was there. Yeah. I was there. October that night. ten. I sure was. I've been at about thirty five, forty games. You know you're, that. You're I'm, an awesome I'm a fan, diehard team. I love yep. it. <laughs> and, and uh uh you wonder how much better you made the team that night.
3: I, I think And I know thing.
1: you're not gonna take the credit and you're gonna resist this, but there's an energy before mm-hmm. they come out on the ice mm-hmm. that makes them invincible. Yeah.
3: For a brief moment, right? It
1: does. Yeah. It, it puts a suit of armor on them yeah. almost. It yeah. makes them bigger than life, skater yeah. faster, you know, hit harder. All of that. Uh, 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 it's unbelievable. And, and you know, I really think, and I've been to hockey games all over the country yeah. and yeah. had Hawks fan- uh, season tickets when I lived in Chicago and Rangers great, in New York. Great hockey town. Absolutely. Yeah. A- a- and... There is something about T-Mobile Arena that's mm-hmm. really special, and you know, you start with telling a story about mm-hmm. the team on the mountaintop, and them yeah. coming to Vegas. Absolutely, and it's 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 really an exciting thing if nobody's been to a game. Let's talk about the WWE for a minute. So oh, you get yeah. out of college, you go right into the Marlins. Yeah, right. Sports. So, yep. Right into film production, correct?
3: Yeah. yeah, sport. I mean, you call it sports production at that point, so it's a little less film, but you're making commercials, you're doing video skits, you're working with players, you're directing actors. Yeah, promos. Promos. All of these. Things and PSI's um, things like that, too. All, all of this, yep. yep, absolutely. You're doing the community outreach, and, yep. and you're, you're working with cameras and like all the equipment you have in this awesome studio. Like, you've got all these toys to again help build the experience at these games so um, Florida Marlins I got to work with Columbus Blue Jackets I got to work with early in their their, time in Columbus which was really neat again a non-traditional hockey town so I got some really good experience there then I got to work with LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers which was just
1: in a great sports town so you went from really a a, a town that wasn't a proven sports town Mm -hmm. into Cleveland one of the best in the country
3: Yeah, big difference I'm guessing yeah it was was different I mean Columbus Ohio you got Ohio State Buckeyes in Columbus so they know know that sport really well and they there was a whole separate group that was almost almost the anti-ohio state who just loved uh, um the blue jackets which was cool but going up to cleveland this this blue collar hard-working city with some of the finest people in the world and but they haven't really won a lot they got really close for 50 years but they haven't really won a lot and then um being a part of that transition that lebron came and again he was the, the this incredible athlete this philanthropic guy who's giving back to his community yeah, bigger He's than life bigger than life just an incredible performer so being around that level of greatness you know even even a little sense you know for what we did it was so much fun to collaborate with a guy like so, that
1: so you got to see the cabs before and after
3: yeah i i got so there you his, saw the spark happen i it was unbelievable i got there his second year and I stayed there until he left first to go to Miami. So they had gotten to the finals. It was incredible. The city was on fire. But, but then he left before they won anything. I had an incredible amount of insanely talented friends and, uh, that are still there. Well, then he comes back. I had left for WWE. I, I don't sit still very well. The NBA was mm-hmm. going on a strike or lockout. I went to WWE, which was an incredible experience. But um, all my friends stayed. He comes back. Every, the city, again, is on fire. They're so excited. And, and he, he brings them a title hundreds of millions of dollars just to the the, the food and beverage industry, hotel, hospitality. You know, people are coming from all over the world. But the Cavs were a successful team before him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the 90s, they were incredible. Absolutely. They will be. It's all about leadership, right? If leadership is driven and focused and has strategy, like anything can be successful in any business.
1: So you go from baseball? Yep, baseball. Into basketball?
3: Baseball to hockey to basketball. To basketball. Basketball.
1: Now you're in wrestling. Woo. <laughs> See, now you co- now you got a story to tell because oh, a man. lot of wrestling is so
3: character-driven. It's, it's all that, John. You, you, you couldn't it, – it is, it is the just epitome of storytelling. Every single moment, every single element, every match, every hold, every yeah. body slam, every promo when they get on the microphone and start yelling at the crowd, every single thing is a story. There's a reason behind why the character would turn his back. There's a reason behind why a, a character would say a certain thing to a crowd. It, it is unbelievable. The kind of team. And they true they're true to character. True it, to it's, character. It's unbelievable to be there. I learned so much. And that's just that's this insane fraternity of storytellers, creatives. They, and they do it all over the world. Yeah. So, so you may do it in Newark. And then you may go to Mexico City and then you may go to Tokyo and then you may go to Cape Town South. It's it's you're ever and, and all they're doing is telling stories, captivating, yeah. compelling stories, which transcends language yeah. with especially with the physicality of what they do. Um and it, it's incredible how we would cultivate a story in all these different cities for all these fans and they're so good philanthropically and again yeah. I I watched the uh Puerto Rico episode. Um oh, my God, you. that's that's bigger than a TV show oh, that's you. I mean that's it's I great saw that we can you were that stuff John. it's yeah. the best and and you know we entertain and and I always you talk about like brain surgeons and oh, they're saving lives, they're saving lives, we don't save lives, but you know there's a moment where you can enhance a life yeah, and, you, and you go back to October 10th where the city was in tough shape and and it was it was a, a catastrophic moment and 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 for three hours, sports transcended. And gave everyone this this allowance to to be unified. Well, that's a powerful word, allowance. It, it, it well and even it allowed us and, to. It allowed you to. And sp- this is where the sports gods were with us because even as we kind of did the initial ceremony, which we thought a lot about, we spent so much time and it was we didn't have a lot of time to do, but we just we just wanted to kind of put this thing together the right way for the city. It wasn't about hockey. It wasn't about us. It was all about Vegas, Vegas, yep. Vegas. This is an 18,000-person group hug moment that they didn't have before they had a professional sports yeah, I team. want to
1: set the stage for yeah, this for the audience. So, so, so the massacre happens in Las Vegas. Those who live here, uh, this is a city of hospitality. We have no other industries. We're all about hospitality and hosting people. And when it happened to those of us who live here, it was like it happened in our living room with our own guests. It was devastating. The Las Vegas Golden Knights, before they even played their first game, put on their jerseys, went all over the city. People didn't even know what the heck the logo was. Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't even know what the Golden Knights was at the time. They went out there, toured the whole city. I made a few stops myself at the time, of course, in the hospitals and such. And uh, 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 connected with the city in a way that... I think empowered each of them in a very special way. It became more about hockey to them long before Mm -hmm. they got on the ice at Mm -hmm. Mm T-Mobile. The city was devastated. There were people still in hospitals, people crying. I cannot express to you the the depth of depression that was in the city of Las Vegas and anger. And we go to T-Mobile for the first home game, for the first hockey team in a brand-new arena with a brand-new team with brand-new players, and we're supposed to be happy. And there are people in the hospital, and we almost feel guilty going. We almost felt guilty. I mean, how do you cheer? How do you get excited? How do you have a good time after that? So we go to T-Mobile, and we put ourselves in the hands of Johnny Greco and his team.
3: It, it was something. And
1: what happened was truly remarkable. Tell the story of how you got there. How did you guys put that together so quickly and... and So well, what Johnny did is he brought out first responders. Yeah. Did a very special ceremony with first responders and players. You got to remember, half the fans didn't even know the players yet. No, it didn't matter that night. It didn't matter that night. Uh, uh, We had a a, a very respectful, very powerful moment. There was not one person in that arena who was not hysterical crying. Not Mm -hmm. one. The hockey game starts. They drop the puck. In the first five minutes, we score three goals, and we all went from crying to jumping up and down in a matter of minutes. And, Johnny, it was because you somehow, through the storytelling, the production, lights, speakers, technology, costumes, fog, through technology, you were able to let us allow ourselves. How did you come up with that? And did you know that's what you were doing at the time?
3: there's a lot of people involved in that night uh and you you know how these these events and productions come along so i um i was i was one small part of an incredible
1: but did you use the word allowance was it was it actually a conscious
3: thought that we have to get this out of the way before we play hockey is there yeah what we what we knew we needed to do um and it was weird because obviously that it happens october 1 and you're just instantly for us you know uh so so uh september we're, we're just trying to get ready for October 10th. We are trying to, right. we have a plan in place for a few months. We're rehearsing. We're trying to get ready to, to release this team and, and let the city be proud of something. And this is yours, Vegas. This is all about this incredible city. We want to give you something to cheer. We don't know how good the team's going to be, but what we can control, because we can't score the goals. We can't yep. make the saves. We can try to make it a party. We can try to make it a good time for you guys to come and be proud of something. And if the hockey works out, Hey, that's fantastic. Um,
1: and you got lucky as hell. on oh,
3: It's, it's okay to be better to be lucky than good, and um, that night that, there were there were hockey gods involved that night. But but we instantly you know October second we're like okay everything we had planned has to change. This is now all about Las Vegas. This is about healing Las Vegas. So it was a
1: festival type of an opening, a party, and then
3: it turned into more of a solemn. Yeah, we, we were we were super lucky. We we got to work with locals, uh, Imagine Dragons, and yep. they allowed us to use a track of theirs that just completely depicts what that felt like, called Warriors. Yep. Yep. Um, I invite everyone. We are the warriors. It's amazing. I can and it picture talks the video about building this town, and um, every time I see that video, I cry. Still, um, and we were two days after this shooting. We were we were doing video shooting with guys who had bullet holes in their necks, yeah. standing there strong and proud, saying, "I am Vegas strong." Ron. And so we had to put our producing caps on, and we, in a way, weren't allowed to feel like we couldn't go through this. Cathartic need that everybody had, so we were we were just kind of create this incredible video, which we were really proud of, to celebrate and have a not a somber night. There it, it was a lot of sadness, and it, and there should have been, and we understand. But it was time to be a little more ceremonial memorialize and celebrate the strength of the community, celebrate the strength of this town, its first responders, all of the heroes that were here. So when we were talking about traditionally for an opening night, you introduce every single player on the team. Mm-hmm. Hey, Vegas, here's your team. Yep. Some people introducing them for the first time. We said, no, no, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to bring out Mark andre Fleury. We're going to bring out private staff sergeant or ER nurse, you know, Beverly McClintock. Escorted by Markon, so we made great. them the hero. They, they made themselves the heroes, but that night we made sure to celebrate Vegas's heroes as heroes as they deserved. And it was ceremonious, and it was beautiful, and it was uplifting. And the city just got behind it. It was all about them. We just it was objective in our eyes as far as how we had to handle that. Um, but but again, Johnny, the,
1: we, we walked in guilty, absolutely, and sad,
3: absolutely. And Why you, am I celebrating this? Why am I having? And a And we good walked
1: time? out. Happy and
3: proud. Yeah, hockey. God's help, though. Yes. <laughs> like, so we did. Oh, we yeah. did that pregame ceremony. The game starts, and you're just like, if we lose like five nothing, this is not going to be great. I said, if we win one game this season for this city, please make, make it, be it be that be one. tonight. And boy, was it! It was unbelievable. And and so the moment. So even during that ceremony, I, I was talking about this recently. It felt like we can't party. We can't. We can't have because you're still thinking about what happened. And really, the truth is. If you had any apprehension of like standing up and dancing and having a good time, there is nothing that will make you go crazy like a goal. goal in that hockey. goal horn eh. goes off and it's so loud and the place is shaking and the oh, song yeah. is right. It's like even if you had some trepidation to like having fun at this point, which I would understand if you did, you can't not go crazy when a goal scores. And then there's like you said three. I got
1: a red light in my house. <laughs> Hooked up on the internet. And every time the knights score a goal anywhere in the country, eh, the light goes off and it rings. It scares the hell out of me. <laughs> but that that's how exciting that sound it's is is nothing like it. Well that's it for my Christmas week, No Excuses. Best of No Excuses podcast. Thank you all for listening and I really want you to know something. I appreciate every one of you. The fact that you take your time to listen or watch me any day at any time is so flattering to me, it means the world to me. Thank you for all your support. Have a great Christmas and a wonderful New Year. I'll talk to you next year.
0: Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on One.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review.